the maturity of the models are just not there yet to really think about, I'm asking a nuanced question and they really don't understand the question. And so that actually makes it easier and creates potentially more interesting and satisfying opportunities for people because they are doing really, really meaningful and positive work. I do think that sometimes the best technology is the one that is kind of invisible, but it's doing its job. So I could see AI doing a lot of stuff in the background to help us have a better life. For example, using AI to filter all, all the spam that we get, you know, from a text messages to email. I see a lot of different unique use cases where AI can run in the background and, and make our lives better. You know, people have been using Stack Overflow for years to do that. Even before that, there was other you know ways of essentially copying code out of a, you know even a book twenty years ago that people didn't necessarily understand. Now, when you copy and paste code, you you can actually ask questions to the AI to explain what's going on. So you can learn more, whereas you might not want to ask that question you know publicly on Stack Overflow because you don't want to look like an idiot and get attacked or something. I think this is common thing with technology everyone gets excited about like a particular tool and they're all using it and then after that we're like all right let's get serious what's actually working what's not and then some people find like the other people find other trends to stick on to hey everyone it's sean falconer and on today's show we have quite the lineup we have rizelle scarlett weandro Magalis, and katie weber all joining me to talk about ai for developers this came together because the four of us had participated on a conference panel earlier this year discussing the topic. And we had a really fun conversation, but we barely scratched the surface. So I thought we should take this conversation to the long form medium of a podcast. And that's kind of how this started. We discussed our impressions of AI for developers, what impact it may or may not have, privacy and security, ethics concerns, what the future might look like, and a whole lot more. We have a diverse set of rules spanning product, marketing, and developer relations. So I think we were able to bring a lot of different perspectives to the topic. One other thing to note, Katie hosted the original panel. So she actually takes over hosting duties on the podcast for me. A little role reversal. And you'll hear from me as a guest. All right, that's enough preamble. Let's take it over to my conversation about AI for developers with Rizelle, Leandro, and Katie. Katie, Rizelle, Leandro, welcome to Software Huddle. And uh, for this you know, special edition, I'm going to hand over my hosting duties to uh, Katie Miller, and I'm going to just participate as a, a guest, a nice role re uh, reversal for me, maybe slightly more relaxing, or maybe it's more anxiety producing, I don't know. But Katie, over to you. Excellent. Now I, now I have the anxiety of like having the hosting duties, but Real honor to be here as the guest host uh, in this edition of Software Huddle. Um, for those that um, I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Katie Miller, currently working as a developer marketing advisor for companies like Data Protocol, which is a platform that um, brings developer relations and marketing teams information and support through content and engaging videos. And what are we here to talk about today? So the four of us, and everyone will have a chance to do introductions in a second, we had the good fortune to um, speak on a panel at the DevRelX Summit barely a month ago. And we got into uh, generative AI. The session, if I'm not mistaken, was what it means to be a developer in the everything GPT era. And it was a session that was really spurred on by this huge boom in generative AI and all the acronyms and words around it and digging into what it means from a product perspective, a developer marketing perspective, a developer relations perspective. Is this a hype cycle? Is this a positive thing? Is this a concerning thing? 
We had about 30, 40 minutes and barely scratched the surface. So immediately upon hanging up from that, we all huddled in Slack and we said, how do we do more of this? How do we keep the conversation going? And so that's what we're really here to do today. We essentially had so much fun and so much to talk about that we wanted to keep talking. Um, for those who didn't have a chance to tune into the DevRelX Summit, um, some of the things that we touched upon that we might revisit today are um, how this era of generative AI has changed each of our respective roles, um, where our companies are respectively on this spectrum of machine learning, artificial intelligence, generative AI, LLM, GPT, um, how because we're developer relations practitioners, how we're balancing innovation and the inherent skepticism and reluctance of developers to adopt new technology, um, how we even define a developer in this era of generative AI, um, how does it create more opportunities? So that's kind of where we left off. And we had a lot more to dig into, particularly around ethics, privacy, safety of data, building models and so forth. So we're going to spend a lot of time getting into that. Um, but before we do that, um, who are these amazing humans around the call? Um, so for today's introduction, um, if each of you could share who you are, um, the company that you're at, and um, between the last time we talked and now, um, Slash Data has actually released its 25th State of the Developer Nation survey, which actually dug into globally how folks are feeling about generative AI affecting work as a developer. So the fun introductory question is today, um, one of the uh, questions was, agree or disagree, AI's net impact on the world will be positive. So um, Rizelle, I'm going to go clockwise on my camera. So why don't you start with your introduction and let us know, agree or disagree, will AI's net impact be positive? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'll think about it while I do my intro. Um, my name is Rizelle Scarlett, and I'm a staff developer advocate at a company called TBD, which I found out after I joined does not mean they're still trying to decide on the name. It stands for To Be Decentralized. And uh, prior to that, I was working at GitHub as a developer advocate, and that's really where I got interested in like AIs and AI and LLMs because of GitHub Copilot and what it can do for um, developers' productivity and um, even like psychological safety for junior developers. Um, in terms of the net impact, I think I like procrastinated enough on my intro. Uh, I think I think it'll be positive overall, but I do think that we need to encourage like the creation of like responsible AI and have people think about ethics so it doesn't go in the wrong direction. Great, thank you. And I think Leandro, you are next on the screen. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, very nice to be chatting with all of you again. Um, I'm currently a VP of product at Proof. Proof is in identity verification and fraud prevention. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm basically I'm in charge of everything that has to do with how others experience Proof, including how our developers implement our APIs, SDKs, and so on. Um, I am an optimist in terms of AI. I do think that the impact will be positive. Um, I, I already see some of those, and we can dig deeper into into those. The other thing that that happened since the last time we talked, in addition to the slash data uh, uh, report, is everything that happened with OpenAI's uh, governance, right? And uh, so that, I think that's also interesting to see, like the, the level of maturity of the industry and 
uh, a lot of like, what we will potentially continue to see as you know things mature and develop. Absolutely. I, I figured at some point we would dance around that without doing too, too much speculating. But I do think that it you you and I think it'll come in in terms of the ethics of it and the ownership of it is you have this really interesting tension in complexity of are we going too fast? Are we not going fast enough? Who is the tension between ethicists and researchers and businesses and who pulls different strings and kind of the, you know, the, 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 both the friction and the balance between all of those things. So, um, you, you teed up the conversation perfectly. Um, and Sean, I, I, I think your, your, your listeners know you, um, but still would love to hear you comment on, um, are you an optimist or a skeptic, um, in terms of this? I, I'm definitely on the optimistic side. Um, you know, I think, in some ways, I, I have to be, you know, I have a, a one and a three year old. So I want to stay positive for, for their future, of course. But I think generally, I'm an optimist when it comes to technology. That being said, I do think that there are some potential real world, like negative consequences that could come from AI, both from uh, job impact, as well as some of the things that we're going to talk about today in terms of, you know, privacy, um, security, uh, responsible AI and even, you know, potential existential risks that could happen. But I think those are important questions to be asking and things to think through. But at the same time, I remain very positive. I think that this could have a massively positive impact on the world the same way that other technology innovations have had, like like the internet. Absolutely. I, I, I'd have to say that just just for my own, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle, and I've I've also flip flopped at different points in time. Um, I think when it initially came out, it was it it was definitely a pause because partially from kind of that business strategy perspective, where it felt like everyone was jumping on this hype train, and it's like whoa, are, are we quite there yet? Is there a there there to be developing? Have we thought about at least some world of possibilities in terms of impact um, before kind of releasing it to the wild? Is it as mature, thinking about it from developers, again, who need to put code into production? Are Is it stable enough? Is it documented enough? Are the the guide guardrails there enough to be able to be developing responsibly and so forth and so that was really my initial reaction was one of real inherent skepticism i think over time i've really come to see that where the technology is right now really is uh, an empowering tool um, just to bring efficiency and ultimately that's what we're all striving for within the what we build which is we want to simplify, automate, abstract away the mundane as much as possible so that we have time to do that meaningful, impactful work. And so I do see that it allows us to be more productive without necessarily replacing jobs. And please, no replacement of call centers at this point. Chatbots are just not there yet. If they cannot understand me like swearing into the phone, I need to talk to a human being, we are not ready to replace call centers with chatbots. Apologies to the U.S. Postal Service because I, I did, in fact, like try them. I actually think that you know I I think I have a different view on the on the call center and customer supports because I, I staying on hold for forty five minutes or an hour and a half to finally reach somebody at United, United Airlines customer support is not a great experience for anybody either. So I would 
gladly talk to a uh, LM powered customer support agent that actually might have better recall and better understanding of the uh, what you can do uh, to you know rebook a flight on United than the actual human that I might actually end up talking to after waiting ninety minutes. I feel like I opened up Pandora's box here, Leandro. Very no, very quickly. I I I do think that uh, that that AI can help in customer support chatbots, but it's it's all about empowerment and 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 depends on the it, it reflects the organization that 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 things are are, are put on because. I would gladly talk to a human and prefer to talk to a human if the human is empowered to help me. If the human is not empowered to help me, I think it's a waste of time for that person to be on the other side of the line. Uh, and it would be good to have some filters that can help me from AI perspective uh, in some kind of a compensation process, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know, my luggage got damaged, my luggage got lost, right? I mean, it's okay. You get like, you know, this amount of credit for a future flight, whatever that is. And I think I can easily solve that with an AI uh, and then, you know, scale like, like escalate as needed uh, to a human that can curate and do a, and do a couple other things. As long as the human is empowered, which sometimes at the moment they're not, so I might as well just talk to a bot. I, I, I Rizal, I feel like we we just went into a really interesting topic. So go for it. Well, I was gonna come in with a little bit more fire, but then Leandro's point made me be like, okay, I kind of see your point. Katie, I agree with you. I do not want to talk to a bot. Anytime I'm calling a service, it's because it's like a, a very difficult problem. Like maybe like the other day I was calling because um for some reason I couldn't log into what's the thing for your stocks? Something like Fidelity, one of those things, Morgan Stanley. And it's like, oh, your username and password's not working, even though like that's my username and password. I worked with a bot for like an hour. It was so annoying. I'm like, I just want to talk to a person. But like, that's how I feel. If I'm calling, there's like, it's more, it's already an elevated problem. But I see Leandro's point. If it's something basic that like, I don't need to wait 45 minutes for like a 10 minute problem, I'll talk to a bot. But usually I'm calling because it's a real problem. So I don't really want that. And then I'm also like, I don't want um to replace jobs. Like a lot of customer support people, I don't know if like, Companies will be like, well, we have all these bots. Let's like get rid of the actual people doing these jobs. So I don't forget about those folks either. And that's where I really see, and I, I kind of see this as a potentially net positive thing, which is if we want people to be empowered in their jobs and to be able to be focused on the most interesting and complex problems, we absolutely want to simplify and automate away my luggage got lost. What do I do? Um, I lost a package in the mail. What are the steps that I need to take? I cannot log into an account. Like those sorts of things with prompts, it's what it is, is when it gets to those more complex scenarios is where I found the interactions right now, the, the maturity of the models are just not there yet to really think about, I'm asking a nuanced question and they really don't understand the question. And so that actually makes it easier and creates potentially more interesting and satisfying opportunities for people because they are doing really, really meaningful and positive work. So I perhaps we're all a little bit more aligned on this than we think we are. Um, 
Uh, I don't know, Sean, now that we've kind of come back around to that, are you are you aligned or do you still kind of disagree? Are you still kind of pro team uh, customer service bot all the way? No, I, I mean, I think that to Leandro's point that a lot of this is, especially at the state that AI is in today, even from like, and, and we'll get into this, like a, you know, engineering co-pilot standpoint, it's really about empowering people to do their job better. So if you can offload a lot of the kind of, I know, um, you know, problems that don't necessarily require uh, a human's level of nuance and understanding that through a uh, well put together bot, then you can rely on people to handle sort of more interesting, complicated use cases. And they're actually creating more value as a person at that point. And then also, you can also pair the person, like the customer support person, with an internal agent that they're relying on. That way, you're taking advantage of the AI system that may have really good recall and is able to, you know, essentially have perfect recall on the the manual for whatever the business is, and then pair that with a person where they can be the human in the loop to make sure that the response makes sense and that the person's getting good good um, uh, quality service, and then they can, you know, five x their uh, scale beyond what they're able to do today. And then that cuts my wait time from, you know, 45 minutes down to five minutes. Absolutely. And that actually brings us back to Leandro, what you had kind of teed up a little bit, which is there was a big news cycle and we still don't hundred percent know what happened. I don't think this is probably right. The right forum to speculate on that. But one of the things that did come out is that interesting tension between, are we moving too fast? Or are we moving too slow? And as we are all practitioners that are really about enabling and empowering developers, it's kind of taking that lens of how, how to move at the right speed and how to guide and advise developers thoughtfully. So um going to kind of put that out there, which is, you know, wh- when people are really, really worried about jobs, I think it's are the are the chatbots that are being built ready? And I think all of us kind of collectively agree, maybe the models aren't quite there yet. And so are companies trying to move too quickly? Are developers, are, are the tools the developers have to build really ready to kind of go to that extreme direction? And, and how quickly or slowly should we be moving in this space? And I think that gets back to the are we all kind of on the hype train or is there really a there there right now? So I'm um, curious, who wants to start with that question? Leandro, you want to go? Go for it. Uh, I wanted to quickly react to that. And um, it, look, now that I'm a father, I have an, an 11-month-old daughter. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about, uh, about growth and innovation in terms of biology as well. Like, I mean, what I see in my daughter is like leaps of growth, right? I mean, sometimes things are stable for a few days and then suddenly, whoa, like, I mean, literally the, the next morning she's like taller and bigger and, you know, her, her software got <laughs> upgraded and she has new skills. <laughs> so it, it's amazing. Uh, but, but the same in terms of bio, biological, biology research, right? I mean, I, I think innovation happens in jumps, leaps and bounds. And what we're seeing right now is certain jumps that happen, certain leaps, and then like everything else, like moving around it, right? So I do see sometimes some false starts, like start, stop, right? And I, I, I think we're getting to, to to what the right pace should be, but there's always going to be like innovations happen, innovation happening in jumps, and we need to be okay with that and then react accordingly. Like, and I do think that we're that 
you know, similar to what we see in some other type of research, like it, we see things happening in leaps and then like regulation governance, like, you know, b- getting built around it, right? Uh, historically, what we've seen is sometimes innovation uh, being much faster and technology being much, much faster than regulation. I think that things are moving fast, faster in both ways, but I think it's helping keeping things in check. Great. So, uh, Leandro, thank you for your reflection and perspective on that. Um, and again, as someone who has children who are respectively 10 and 12 years older than yours, it's a really great parallel to look at biological development as well as technological development, because uh, I remember the expression when my kids were babies, which is they'll do something and then the next day they'll make a liar out of you because you're like, they slept through the night. Just kidding. They like eating spinach. Just kidding. And while they definitely still go through those phases and growth and leaps, um, it definitely tempers out over time as well um, as they become more sentient, functional human beings and not little beautiful baby blobs. Um, would anybody else like to jump in and comment on that topic? Um, so I'm not a parent, so I can't make any analogies. I still feel like I'm a kid. But the pace we're moving at technologically, I I would agree agree with Leandro, like it makes sense at the pace. But I think my concern sometimes is like, is our industry just like moving at this pace for money? Like, are we like, what's the motivation behind why all these companies are like adding AI and LLMs into their products? Is it just because VCs are like, hey, we're going to give you money. So like, okay, let's hurry up and like randomly add AI in here. That's the part where I take issue with. But I think it's okay if it's just from like an innovation standpoint and they're just, we're just like experimenting and being like, how can we make things better? And maybe sometimes things will break and like like Leandro said, sometimes we'll be like at like a plateau a little bit and then sometimes we'll skyrocket. But it's more the motivation behind why we're moving so fast is what like brings me a little concern. Yeah. And don't worry, we're all kids at heart. I literally just spent six days at amusement parks last week. So and laughed and screamed with the same joy as my children on roller coasters. So it's what what is life if not joy? Um, Sean and you? So, I mean, I think it's hard to like temper the speed of technology innovation, but I also think that in some ways, like certain, you know, I think the the companies that are sort of leading the charge in, in the world of AI, you know, open, open AI and also, you know, other people that are um, uh, uh, building foundation models and stuff, they are moving quite quickly, but I think actually the industry is not necessarily moving that fast in terms of like adoption of a lot of these tools. Like there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of people, you know, tacking on AI to their, you know, homepage or to the name of their company. But there's n- I haven't seen that many like big product launches outside of sort of the core AI companies. So I think especially in the enterprise space, there's a lot of interest, but not necessarily that many projects that are like fully going live. And I think part of that is, you know, some of the challenges that we've talked about uh, or we've touched on here that we'll probably get into more detail is around, um, uh, you know, ethics and responsible AI and privacy and security. Like there's some real big challenges. And also from a technology standpoint, like we don't need to have really good ways of testing whether one model is better than another model and are, you know, uh, how can we, you know, progress as a company or our, our, our investment. So I think a lot of the stuff that we're seeing is more 
like using these as tools um, to help speed up you know, content creation, maybe uh, using tools like GitHub Copilot or other uh, uh, code assistants to help speed up um, engineering. And those are fantastic, but it's more of this kind of like human in the loop, uh, um, uh, like making us be able to do more work efficiently than necessarily uh, like like huge impactful, like this is displacing everybody. It's not, not like uh, introducing autonomous driving uh you know 18 wheelers right now that would remove jobs from like truck drivers like we haven't reached i i don't think we've reached that point a lot of stuff uh hasn't been sort of fully adopted and fully realized in the enterprise even though there's a ton of interest sean i i actually really appreciate the perspective that you shared that even though and even combining that with what results shared which is it seems like there's so much investment in financial investment um, and focus being put into this, that when it actually comes to adoption, there is some judiciousness to it, which really means in terms of thinking about building meaningful customer experiences, uh, we're not necessarily, the the actual usage of it from a, de- like building products with AI in it is actually trending in a very potentially responsible way but a lot of the investment right now up front is really in that research and development side. Mm-hmm. And I think from a data standpoint, like from like uh, my just speaking from my sort of day job and lens of around privacy, I think we're in a much healthier place when it comes to thinking about the challenges of data privacy and, and personal privacy than we were, you know, 20 years ago at the beginning of the Internet or even, you know, 10 to 15 years ago at the beginning of uh, social networks. Uh, so. I think we're asking a lot of the right questions. And even from a regulation standpoint, there's a lot of um, like there's the EU AI Act that is um, being pushed through right now. Uh, uh, Joe, B- President Biden's um, executive order talked about uh, a lot of things about AI and privacy. Uh, so there is a lot of stuff that we're, we're seeing like proactively being done right now at the government level, which is way better than we have been historically. So I think that's a good sign that we're at least asking the right questions and trying to make the right decisions. Great. And that actually so beautifully leads into the next question, which is um, really exploring safeguarding sensitive data, um, which is uh, related, but a little bit of a different topic, particularly around um uh, personally identifiable information, intellectual property, things like that. It's really, really exciting to be able to synthesize all of this information and to output things. I think each of us could really point to a period of time in which these tools really helped us do things much more quickly, efficiently, meaningfully. And at the same time, a lot of the information that's out there is connected to individual human beings. And so what does that mean for the data that goes into these models? Um, curious if any of you want to uh, jump in and uh, tackle that question. Sure, I'm happy to jump in and get us started. So, I mean, I think the big challenge that um, people are trying to navigate when it comes to uh, generative AI or really any sort of AI model right now is that if we want to leverage customer data, employee data, uh, you know, internal documents that might contain intellectual property, what does that mean in terms of using that as training material? Like, how do we, um, you know, in the world of GDPR and things like the right to be forgotten, like, how do we comply with someone coming and saying, "Hey, I want you to delete my information from your system," but if we use their information 
to train an LLM, there's not really a delete button for an LLM. Like the models are designed to learn, not unlearn. So that is a fundamental problem. There's some early research in the, the space of being able to uh, delete or remove certain information from an LLM uh, through a series of fine tuning, which is something that we've talked about previously on this show. But it's none of that stuff is is production ready. So this is, I think, one of the big challenges that is limiting companies to move beyond sort of prototype and demoware to actual production because they don't really have a good solution to this this challenge. And when you start to think about um, you know developing this stuff globally then you need to be also thinking about like, how do I deal with data sovereignty or locality laws? How do I keep customer information w- bound within the regions of a particular country to comply with those regulations uh, while running a global LLM? And these are hard problems to solve. Um, and uh, not everybody, or, you know, most people don't have an answer to these types of questions. Yeah. And I think one of the questions, so, and Leandro, I'll get to you in just a second, just as a, a kind of, preview, I think one of the things we were going to talk about is different models is also just do you create your own models? Do you use existing models, kind of pay for data, things like that? And also having the size of the model that's going to be meaningful. And if you are really limited in what you can pull in to make sure that you're really protecting people's information, what does that mean for the efficacy and power of the model as well? Um, Leandro, I'd love to um, throw it over to you now. Perfect, and it was a great. Uh, thank you for teeing it up so nicely. Like, that, that, that's, that's where I was going to go as well. Uh, th- the reality is that developing an LLM is very uh, resource intensive and, and, and expensive, right? So the question is, do you really need to develop an LLM, or you can uh, perhaps you can develop an LLM uh, with public information that only reads and interprets the, the internal documentation that you need, right? And you run that privately within the enterprise, right? Th- that, that's one of the things that I've seen um, companies experimenting with, right? Um, I think we also need to be realistic and people are going to leverage, like we, 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 we touched on this a little bit on the, on the previous conversation, right? Public uh, versus private. Uh, people are going to use public uh, LLMs and you know, we, there should be some guide rail, guardrails in terms of how you use it, how you prompt it. Uh, to avoid any any IP issues or PII uh, to o- oversharing, right? Um, that, that, that's one thing there. And those guidelines can be both from a, a from a, just a guideline perspective for people to follow, but also they could be enforced or uh, or curated, or, or there, there can be software that can help redact stuff as well uh, to make sure that you get a high quality prompt for what you need, but without uh, giving away too much. Um, and then the other thing is like leveraging other LLMs privately um, that they can interpret your data, but they don't consume it for learning. They just look at it and interpret it. You, you, good point. Like I, I don't think most people aren't going to be building foundation models. Most people are going to be augmenting existing foundation models, but you know, using rag or uh, maybe some form of fine tuning, but the notion of private LM, I think it does solve potentially some types of problems, but it gives you, but really what it gives you is model isolation, which might be good enough for whatever your use case is. But it's a little bit like setting up a security perimeter around your infrastructure. Once somebody's sort of within that, they have they they have full access. So 
I think the the thing that or the limitation around private LM is that it doesn't really solve the problem of you know who sees what, when, where. Like I can't essentially govern access to the responses of the model differently based on who you are. So a customer support person should probably see a different type of response or have a different level of access than somebody you know in marketing or maybe the CEO of the company. And I think that is the the cha- uh, like the the central challenge that um, companies training things on customer data or employee data don't really have a, a great solution for. And I I had just out of curiosity dug into terms and conditions of even using the consumer facing versions of some of these. And and I think you both alluded to this, the the depending on how the model is set up and the tool is set up, the prompts, it's generative, like putting in those prompts. And so the question that I have for all of you, and maybe Rizal, I'll have you start with this one is what responsibility do we have as marketers, as advocates, as product owners in terms of not just what apps we build, but how we educate our developers, how we educate our customers to make sure that they're using it responsibly? Um, because it was not necessarily super obvious that if you put a name in, that that name, even though it's like one in a gazillion, that that is not a, an accurate number, but one in a very, very large number of data points, it now becomes a thing that is part of that data. And so again, kind of putting back on our respective marketing product advocacy hats, how are you all thinking about the resources and materials and documentation and transparency and discoverability of that to make sure that people are building the tools responsibility responsibly and using the tools responsibly. So um, Rizal, curious if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I actually think that's like top priority, like just educating people how to build and how to use those responsibly. Um, I think tools like tool, GitHub Copilot, um, I think, this year launched the Copilot Trust Center. I don't, I don't work there anymore, but I thought that was helpful because it's like videos, documentation, blog posts, et cetera, just different resources explaining how your, your code gets used if you're, depending on what license you're using, like if you're using a Copilot for individuals or for business. And I think that was put out as a reaction and like a, a hindsight type of thing. But I think like going forward, any company, any product, any developer advocate, they need to put that as like their foremost thing. Like in as as you're telling people, hey, here's the cool thing that ChatGPT or this LLM can do. Also be like, like put a disclaimer in there, but please don't add in your, your personal information. Please don't add in like your things that your job is doing that are secretive. I think that's a responsibility of all developer advocates because our job is not to sell the product or um, our job is more like, I don't know about product manager, product marketers, but our job as developer advocates is to empower developers. And I don't think it's very empowering if we're like, Oh yeah, just use this, but we don't tell them about like the pitfalls or any of the drawbacks. And I feel like I tried to do that as much as possible with GitHub Copilot, where I saw people like questioning, how does this thing work? Like what's really happening with my code? Like I tried to address those as much as possible. And I think other advocates 
should make that their top priority in other companies as well. Yeah, you you actually reminded me of of what it's like to learn how to drive a car where yes, you learn how to accelerate, you learn how to put on the brakes. If you're old school like me, you actually learn how to shift a car. You know, you learn those things which are the mechanics of making something move. But you're not allowed to get your license purely because you understand the mechanics. You need to understand the rules of traffic. You need to understand safety. You need to understand speed limits and things like that. And so I think it's something similar here that it's not just learning how to drive the car, but it's learning how to drive the car safely, um, which I think is really good. And as a developer marketer, and I'll I'll put it over to Sean in a second, um, I think if developer marketing is done correctly, we're really just... Ad- amplifying the the work that advocates are doing and making sure that it's discoverable and that it's targeted and everything like that. But it's really led from that same place of empathy and empowerment. Um, so I would I would actually agree a lot with that. That to lead with a message, it's not just about the promise of what's possible, but also the promise of what's possible and that you'll be able to do it in a really really responsible way, ideally. And Sean, as the other um, recovering marketer on the call, I'm, I'm curious how, how you see this. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's not that much difference between um, sort of modern approaches to marketing and what Rizal spoke about in terms of the responsibilities of a developer advocate to empower developers. It's marketing is really about building relationships at scale. And the only way to build relationships with people is to, to give and to take and to be um, essentially honest and, uh, uh, and and transparent about you know what you can or cannot do or provide to somebody like essentially you could uh, uh, I don't know smokescreen market people but and convince them to buy your product but if they're you sell them uh, you know a bill of goods that's not the reality they're not they're going to churn as a customer anyway so you know what value is that so you might as well be upfront about the what you can and can't do. And I think that that is, um, you know, very, very important when we're talking about these AI systems, like people are going to figure it out if you're, if you're lying to them and that's not going to be a great way to, to build a, a relationship. And, uh, it's probably going to lead to, uh, I don't think great business outcomes in the long run. I'd like to quickly add to that, uh, Katie, I really like your analogy on the, uh, about driving a car. And, uh, you know, one of the phrases that I live by is making the implicit explicit. I think that that you were all touching on this, but the reality is that context matters, right? Putting the AI tool in context, putting driving in context and understanding the consequences that what you're doing in terms of your actions while driving or what you're building, uh, understanding that context matters. I can help people uh, use their common sense to decide how they want to use things. There's also the issue like Rizal, as you were talking with Copilot or, or, or using AI for code. You know, the code that is built with an aid of an AI, who owns that, right? I mean, there, there's some IP, interesting IP challenges there. And, in, you know, the, things can be structured in, in, in slightly different ways, right? So I think that that's another, that's another uh, field for opportunities there. Yeah, and I think just uh, in terms of the context, I think that's really important to consider in terms of, like how careful you need to be using these systems as well. Like if, if, if your AI system is, I don't know, to assist somebody um, to generate, you know, I, I don't know, a better, more compelling tweet. Like, I don't know the consequences of that, not, you know, we, uh, an error happening with that or, it, you know, a hallucination happening. It's fairly 
you know, like inconsequential. But if you're using uh, an LLM to diagnose somebody of a disease, or you're using AI to autonomously drive a vehicle, the the bar for um, precision and error rate is different. It's much, much higher than it's higher than what we would expect of a human, I think, as well. So the, co the context really matters in terms of what you're actually producing and how much sort of due diligence you need to do around um, uh, how, uh, the, the quality of the output. So what kind of started this conversation? And I, I recognize our time is going to come to a close soon. I'm going to I'm going to give everyone kind of um, time for any parting reflections and thoughts. But what really spurred on this topic was that very Portlandia-esque feeling that, you know, starting in kind of February, March last year, it really felt like everybody was just putting a GPT on it. And it was that sense of, is, is there something there? And I think what we've really kind of all alluded to is we're very much in that fast moving innovation phase that while there are actually some regulations and guardrails being discussed along with it, which is moving much faster than technical technological innovation in the past, it, it is in many ways kind of in that research and development phase and that especially at the enterprise level, what it actually means, especially when you are getting into private data, personally identifiable, personally identifiable information, IP and so forth, isn't necessarily moving quite as quickly as the um, research and development that companies are doing. Um, but, you know, we're, we're coming up to the, the close of this particular calendar year. It's amazing to think that we only have Oh my gosh, I have to do the math now. Is it like 33, 34 days left in this calendar year? Um, just curious, I want you all to look into your crystal balls and tea leaves. Um, do you think that kind of that everything GPT um, in terms of what people are talking about at events, um, how they're presenting demos, how they're naming things, how they're naming their companies and products, do you see that momentum continuing or do you think that we're... Leandro, to your point, like, are we kind of getting to like a leveling out phase in terms of that biological or technological development that it will still be moving fast, but maybe not as fast as it was over the last 12 months? Or are we still going to see like everything GPT for the next, you know, foreseeable future? I can quickly react to that. And I do think that it's like like the second that you said, right? I mean, I think it will it'll still move fast, but it will not be everything GPT on it. Got it. Uh, 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 Rizal, what are you thinking? Yeah, I just wanted to second that. I think that I think this is a common thing with technology. Everyone gets excited about like a particular tool and they're all using it. And then after that, we're like, all right, let's get serious. What's what's actually working? What's not? And then some people find like the other people find other trends to stick on to. So I do think it'll It'll start to level out. We'll still move fast, but we'll start to like make more fortified uh, models and tools. Great. And Sean, you want to bring us home on that question? So I think that we're still a little bit in the hype train of um, uh, generative AI. We're still in like the pets.com <laughs> bubble uh, a little bit. Um, and I think we still have some time before we get to the next stage, which is, you know, the trough of disillusionment. And then finally, the real work starts. So I think we're probably, uh, uh, you know, maybe a year. Although things are moving so fast that maybe, maybe I'm, um, you know, overestimating the the timeline here. But the, I, I think we're still, you know, six to twelve months away from 
getting to a point where we the real work starts and we and we go beyond just people thinking of sort of the baseline um LLM use case of hey we're going to add a chatbot into this thing uh, i think we're going to see a lot more like real work that comes out of this in, in the near future where people are really thinking from like an AI first mindset of how do we like, uh, uh, like reinvent this type of product. So in terms of closing thoughts, again, we've covered uh, between the DevRel X session, which, um, you know, we can, we can hopefully link to in this post when it goes out. So if anybody missed that, they can get, definitely go take a listen. It's on YouTube. Um, and then this one, we, we covered a huge amount of ground, uh, really what it means, uh, what this era of everything GPT means in terms of how developers approach their work as developers, um, doing their day-to-day job, as well as what they're really being compelled to build from a business strategy perspective, talked about ethics, we've talked about privacy, we've we've looked at it through the lens of each of our particular roles um, and been able to have both breadth and depth in that conversation. And so as we conclude, um, this is actually a question that I love to ask job candidates um, is, is there anything that I didn't ask that you're like, that's the thing that I definitely wanted to make sure to share and hit home with? So that's the concluding question that I'm going to leave you all with today. Um, And last time I went Rizal, Leandro, Sean. So this time I'm going to go to Sean, Leandro, Rizal. So Sean, is there... Anything I didn't ask that you're like, this is the point that I definitely want to make sure hits home in this like everything GPT conversation. I I would love to get people's take on, um, I guess, like where we feel, whether we feel there's a real existential risk to the the future of AI. You know, I I talked to Bob Muglia recently about his book and who's the former uh, CEO of, of Snowflake, a long-term time executive at Microsoft. And you know, he's predicting essentially artificial general intelligence by 2030, which is uh, coming, up, you know, coming up fast. Uh, and you know, we could be wrong about these types of things, but at some point, potentially in our lifetime, we could reach super intelligence. And what does that essentially mean for humanity? Uh, and I think these are kind of like important questions. I'm not a, like I said a, at the beginning, I'm an optimist, so I'm not a doomsdayer, but I'm curious to hear what people's kind of thoughts are on uh, the potential existential risk of, of AI and, and potentially robotics. Oof. That's a, that's a big one. I'll, I'll bring that one home, but uh, on to Leandro. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one is a loaded one. Uh, well, I, I, I hope we see more of a, of a positive future versus Skynet, right? Um, and and th- th- that's what I see on that one. But we, we can expand. We can have a whole other episode on that. Um, it, but going back to Katie's question on, on you know, and, and putting a product hat in some product, you know, in terms of use cases, I, I do think that, you know, sometimes the best technology is the one that is kind of invisible, but it's doing its job. So I could see AI doing a lot of stuff in the background to help us have a better life. For example, uh, like using AI to filter all, all the spam that we get, you know, both from a text messages to email. Uh, I, I see a lot of different unique use cases where AI can run in the background and, and make our lives better. And Rizal, yeah, go for it. I like that idea, Leandro. Um, oh, hey. I am a big fan of AI, but the idea of artificial general intelligence scares me just a little bit. I do like using AI for like min, like small things, like what Leandro said, or I really like 
I know maybe people are not happy with the stage that we're at, but I like the stage that we're at where like AI is just helping people to code or helping them to think of like, oh, how can I like reframe this, this blog post or give me ideas or something like that. I really feel like I like the stage that AI is at where it's like an ideas tool, a brainstorming tool, something that gets you from one point to the next. But I don't really want to like leverage AI to the point that, it's it's doing too much. I don't I don't know how else to form my thoughts here. And and and, and I think that that what you may feel is wishy washiness is is kind of how I feel as well. And that's how I was going to bring it home. And I think the question that I had asked in the last one is: Are we heading more towards Vonnegut's player piano, or are we heading more towards the Mandalorian's Plaza Fifteen Planet? which is, is it going to be something that human humans essentially become non-essential or is it going to be that um, it actually allows us to live our best lives because we actually can live these like robust, healthy lives of leisure. And I think as I listened back last time, we were all kind of somewhere in the middle, but the, 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 the thing that um, really struck me. And, and Rizal, this is perhaps what you were talking about is the benevolent uses of it or the uses that may sound really, really positive, um, but can very quickly become stereotypical and biased. And um, the, the, this was that idea of it's really nice if you're trying to create a tweet, but if you're really trying to do something much larger, um, can become really damaging if there isn't that human, like actual human um, overlay and investment in it. And especially in this era of misinformation and so forth, like how may governments and politicians and so forth actually manipulate information, which is something that does give me a little bit of pause of how do we really cut through the noise um, and understand what is real and what is not real? Um, at the same time, though, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. I, I just got back from um, a, a week in uh, Disney World and went to Epcot Center for the first time since 1995. And when I was there in 1995, it still had the different exhibits of um you know, that were made in like the 1960s that predicted what the future would be like in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, it was very hopeful and optimistic. And it's, you know, and it, and it was like, we would be able to live underwater, and we would be able to talk to each other through screens and things like that. And some of those things have come to pass, some of them are possible, but we haven't necessarily prioritized them. So I also like to think if Epcot were to redo it and say, where are we now and what do we predict that we'll be able to do in the next 20 to 30 years and how does technology allow us to do those things? Um, there's also a really idealistic and hopeful lens that we can take, um, that we can look to it as well um, and, and the role that all of these things can play. So. I, I think that if there weren't the guide rails and the ethical conversations and the regulations happening, I would have more heebie-jeebies than I do right now. Um, but again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a little bit more hopefulness and, and idealism. 
And uh, so that's kind of what, what, what we'll leave with. Um, any closing thoughts, folks? This was a very fun conversation, um, but want to make sure that, that we all got our ideas out there. So um, anything else folks want to end with or are we good? I, I want to end with something very quickly. I do think that a lot of these AI tools do provide, and I say this all the time, they provide psychological safety for especially like folks who are more junior in their roles. And I think when people hear me say this, they like assume automatically that I'm junior. It's not that I'm junior, but I do often think about that experience I had as a junior developer, especially since I was like the only black girl on my team, it was like m super scary to like ask for help um, and or super scary to just like discuss certain ideas I had. And I think using tools like ChatGPT, GitHub Copilot, all the other like LLMs and, or L LLM powered tools out there um, is like a, it, it provides a superpower for folks so that they can be like, all right, cool. I'm going in the right direction. I've, I've been able to like just verify and validate, validate that this idea makes sense. And now I can feel more comfortable going towards um a a coworker or something and being like hey here's how I want to write this test how here's how I want to like structure this database or something like that because you were able to talk back and forth with with something that's not necessarily going to judge you um so I I will hope to see like that part of like the use of AI just continues to expand. Um, and I know a lot of people are like oh it's not great for juniors because that reduces their their um intelligence not intelligence but their experience or the knowledge that they'll build up with code but i i strongly disagree with that because i think if they're intentional and they learn how to use these tools well like if someone teaches them and they have the fundamental knowledge of coding they can use that to just continue to like build up on their their coding knowledge uh, that's all i have great thank you that that is a really that actually brings things together with a really pretty bow because again, the spirit of this was how we're all thinking about it through our developer program lens, marketing, advocacy, and product, and how we're really thinking about our end users experience, our customers experience, our developers experience. And that really brings it home with a really thoughtful, empathetic, and um, hopeful lens. So thank you so, so much. Sean, I'm actually going to throw it back over to you to bring us home um, with this episode of the podcast. Um, I have to say thank you so much for the opportunity to guest host. I, I hope I um, held the reins well. Um, but if there's anything that you want to leave your listeners with, um, I'll let you wrap it up. So back over to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, well, thank you, Rizal, Leandro, Katie, for for doing this. Um, and also, Katie, you did a fantastic job. Uh, you know, I think I was kind of hoping that you would do, you know, maybe um, make it look harder <laughs> so that uh, uh, it would make me look better, but I might have to just give up my hosting duties to you full time at this point. But uh, yeah, thanks so much. And I, I think, uh, Rizal, I really, uh, uh, thanks for chiming in on, on that point at the end. I think that's a great, great example of the the value of some of these systems, um, you know, early on is because I it, copying and pasting code from various sources is not something new. You know, people have been using Stack Overflow for years to do that. Even before that, there was other you know ways of essentially copying code out of a, you know even a book twenty years ago that people didn't necessarily understand. Now, when you copy and paste code, you you can actually ask 
questions to the AI to explain what's going on. So you can learn more, whereas you might not want to ask that question you know, publicly on Stack Overflow because you don't want to look like an idiot and get attacked or something. So I think the psychological safety yes. angle is a really, really great um, uh, point to make. And I think it's a wonderful uh, use case for, for AI, even beyond coding, uh, you know, having essentially a place where you can ask any type of question that you want without being able to, to feel judged. Yes, agreed. Thank you so much, everybody, for, for joining and cheers. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having us.